Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those who don't know me, I'm a birth worker, a life coach, hypnotist, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, I expose the forces at play attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, pornography, prostitution, and so much more. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning, while listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In my coaching and hypnosis, I help women and men stop getting triggered by every single thing, cultivate resilience, stop unwanted behaviors, and increase self-confidence. You can book your first session at whosebodyisit.com, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. And I just want to say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out, and produce regular episodes for you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And also consider making a financial contribution via the link in my show notes. You can also visit my activist sticker shop. My pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at whose body is it? Without further ado, let's get into this week's story. On today's episode, I'm joined by my dear friend and women's sexual trauma coach, Serendipity Day. Dippity and I were in the mountains of North Carolina working and partying at the Matriarch Rising Festival in June. Dippity has worked and volunteered for many women's festivals around the U.S., but this year, Matriarch Rising Festival was her number one priority. Dippity explains the essentials for throwing the best women-only events. Hint, it starts with knowing what a woman is. And Dippity brings into the conversation her experiences in the BDSM world, which seemingly offers women defined sexual boundaries. But is it possible to heal past violations while exposing ourselves to further exploitation? We also discuss porn and its false promises of empowerment, marriage, which of our human rights we trade for social and financial safety, and finally, how radical feminism provides the lens to analyze sexual politics from our own personal experience. This episode is a bit of a, a taste of uh, what we talked about at RadFem Tea Time at the festival back in June. I'm so grateful to have Dippity uh, on the podcast finally, and for this to be the 50th episode. Yeah, 50 episodes deep. Thank you all for listening. We've we've worked together. We've collaborated before, um, but I thought it'd be really interesting for this episode for women to hear about our experience at 
this women's festival, one of the only remaining truly women's festivals that we know of um, in North America. Uh, And I want this episode to be like a a fun, also like joyous episode because we just had the best time ever. And a lot of the content, you know, that I share on the podcast is, is heavy and depressing. And um, we, you know, we, we certainly talked about heavy things at the festival in our, in our rad femme, uh, tea time that we we hosted, but yeah, I would really love for women to just get a window into the experience that we just had with 200 women in North Carolina on our friend Emily Saldea's land. And so, as a as an experienced festival goer, maybe maybe you can just kind of start off with um, sharing you know, why you chose to only go to this festival this year? Yeah. So, um, I'll back up a little bit and say, I found women's festivals in 2017 and my, I have an older sister. She is 13 years older than I am. And she kind of stumbled into radical, like a radical feminist analysis um, after women or Michigan Women's Music Festival ended in 2013 or 15. I don't remember. Uh, Michigan Women's Music Festival was a music festival for women, but put on a very lesbian cult culture. Uh, for, and it went on for 40 years. Wow. I didn't and- know that. 40 mm-hmm. years? 40 years. Yeah. Um, and so it has such a rich history and rich culture of women. Um, in one of the heights of the festivals, I can't remember what year exactly it was estimated that over 10,000 women came from all around the world. And ultimately in my perception of things, two things are what shut it down is that kink culture came in and transness came in and men came in. And so in the last year of that festival, they did a cry out and said, hey, create your own festivals. And so in 2018, you know, 17, 18, there was around eight or nine women only festivals happening in the U.S. And I went to six of them. I went to two in Michigan. I went to Oregon, Ohio, Arkansas. They were everywhere. And it was so cool. And right away I started volunteering and I'm a very personal person. I get into conversations quite easily and I love gossip. (laughs) And so I quickly knew all of the gossip and all of the women's circles and all of the, you know, the organizational drama And yeah, and I volunteered at these festivals uh, from 2018 until 2020. And then COVID happened, right? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) And and I saw a great divide within radical feminism, Um, a divide between women of like, oh, who's going to, who's going to be protected with the special medicine. And if you're not protected, then you're not, we don't want you to come you know, and overnight, it seemed like all of these amazing, amazing women's communities uh, were just shut, you know, they shut down and shut off just like the rest of the the country. 
and I was right there in the center of this discussion and it seemed like nobody wanted to to really speak up and be like it's okay for women to come if they're if they don't have the special medicine we're all outside and so I was saying these things and right away I was kind of getting a lot of hate from uh, older women and not, and I'm not call it like older women, not necessarily like the crone leaders, you know, of, of these festivals, just like different organizational people. And they were like, oh, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna tell you one more thing. And then in 2021, or hardly anyone had a festival in 2020, 2021 comes around and there's papers that you have to sign saying if you're vaccinated or not to get into the festivals you have to wear a mask indoors in an outdoor festival and I'm like what are you considering indoor like you know and there was just so much drama and not just around the COVID things, but, you know, who's dating who, what's a polyamorous relationship like in a lesbian women's organizational committee, right? Like, why is that even getting brought up in our organization? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this year, I only went to Matriarch Rising, and that that's the only festival I am planning or did and I'm planning on doing this year. And it's because I have such reverence for these women, right? Like the women that we got to work with um, for a whole entire week plus of getting the festival together. And so last year was the first year of the festival. And I, I was very much in an observation point because Matriarch Rising does have a different set of values than these other festivals that I've been going to, uh, mainly on what type of women are centered, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so Michigan Women's Music Festival and all of the seeds that came from there are more lesbian centered. Mm -hmm. And so this means that you have like Butch Dykes doing security and making like giant stages and putting all of this production together and building the things. And, and that is amazing to witness. It, it like to see... 3,000 women come together and it like the stage, the food, the everything be built by women for women like that. That is that, you know, like I, I was like, oh, I, I can do things. I just saw like, you know, a set of women build a giant stage like I can do house projects. Right. Like I can open a jar of pickles <laughs> like, wow, this is so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and and at Matriarch Rising Festival, there is we we center mothers, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And to, not to say that mothers can't be lesbian as well. Not to say that these other festivals don't have children running around and babes on breasts. It, it, but it is a different value center. Um, not to say that one's better or worse than the other either. Um, and this also meant that all of the women's husbands were the ones that are building the things, mm -hmm. pre-production. Um, and so it, the first year, it was very much a place of observation for me. And then this year, this is the only one I'm doing because of the lack of <laughs> the lack of organizational drama <laughs> and the, the respect that I feel like is there in place of. 
right? Like we all came together with such respect for each other. And this team that we had, oh my gosh, let's just talk about these women for a second. We had the coolest team. We really did. We really did. And, and you know, I think like to Emily's credit, like she has chosen like her friends to be a part of this magic and we are all coming on on a somewhat even playing field when it comes to like emotional literacy there was no drama because everyone is taking responsibility for themselves and communicating effectively and when you have a team that's resourced in that way it's really hard to find drama you know and and yeah, that I, I totally agree. And you and I were both on staff last year, on staff this year. And I, I feel like last year, maybe, I don't know that I would say I was in observation mode. I was more, I just wasn't able to drop in like I was this year and really like experience the festival on some levels, you know, it wasn't like solely in like on work mode for every second of, of the, of the week. But yeah, I totally agree with you. Our team was like, phenomenal and we had the practice of last year you know just being together in I mean, that way we had double the staff of last year and we still did yeah. amazing yeah totally 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 yeah it's it's crazy how how smoothly it went given the number of people there and emily's organizational skills and like just it's it's wild that so many factors to put something like that on yet you know the feedback that i heard from a lot of the women attending was that that is it went so they couldn't believe how awesome and smoothly it it went and was run um i remember one woman last year saying that she was she had never been in a space where there wasn't drama and fighting and like competition amongst women and so the whole week she was just kind of waiting anticipating that to just to be inevitable for that to happen. And I wonder that that experience couldn't have only just been, you know, hers. I'm sure many other women experienced that of like, what, what is this experience of one another where we're not in that place of competition or jealousy or fighting or drama? It's pretty one cool. Of the things, yeah. One of the things that I'd like to point out that I really noticed this year is that there wasn't, and I'm not, I'm not coming in a place of like blame or anything, but like, I really noticed that there wasn't a lot of alcohol use. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. there was one camp that did have alcohol use and they had drama. I, yeah. I do notice things like that when, and, and I think that like, it's so cool, like showing up to a place and seeing the different levels of consciousness, you know, yeah. seeing how, how women presence themselves. Um, yeah. And I, I think that a lack of alcohol really contributed to the, to the presence of the women and to the, the lack of participant drama. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that came up for me is seeing that expansion at that rate doesn't always work for everyone. You know, I think like we've had a a steady kind of easing in over the years where like a space like this just feels freaking awesome. And like, at, you know, like 
I, I maybe I'll speak for myself. But I felt totally at home, like bring it on, like what's next? Like, let's, you know, just totally there for it. And for someone who's never been in a woman only space, who doesn't do women's work, who isn't spending all day talking to women and supporting women, I imagine that it was maybe too much too quickly, like to be thrown in. Well, you know, we, it could go either, it could go one, it went one of two ways, I think, for, for women who were totally brand new. They either kind of like dove in and were just like eating up every moment of it. And then others like were like, whoa, this is like, this is too much of a confrontation of like what my life is outside of this space. And so, yeah, it was interesting to kind of see that, that happen as well. And I think that that can be attested to by uh, the amount of women who left on Monday and Tuesday. Mm. Right. Like on, uh, so my, some of my duties as staff, I was, um, keeper of the gate. I was camp host. I led song circle on Monday and Thursday. And then Isabella and I did rad femme, uh, with Amy on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, so I, I was very busy (laughs) woman over the weekend or over the week and on Monday and Tuesday, women left because it was too much for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really interesting. And there was nothing we could do at that point. We There was one woman who left after our Rad Femme tea time who didn't get the memo that this was like an event where pretty much all the women know what a woman is and are not for pornography and prostitution and surrogacy and all the things trans ideology and uh she i guess we had different definitions of what radical feminism um gonna say means yeah before i was introduced to the radical feminist analysis i called myself a radical feminist because i meant extreme and so this woman kind of like snuck out of the festival in the wee hours of the mo- on Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning and sent us an email to let us know why. And what struck me is that like, like our paths could have crossed at any point in time. And it just happened that our paths crossed here, but she was like, Oh, I've been an anarchist and I've been here and I've been there and I've been to this place and all of these places except trans people and i'm like i've been to all of those places (laughs) (laughs) like i've been to every single thing that you just mentioned in your little like credentials the credentials Mm -hmm. right it was all about the credentials that's true yeah and i'm like i've done all of those things too that's my resume (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I love the part of Rad Femme Tea Time where you were talking about BDSM. And I think she I don't think she mentioned that specifically, but the like the idea that if like you were in control when you were in that world, like thinking that that would be the solution to healing, you know, sexual trauma. Can you can you say more about that? Yeah, I was in BDSM for quite some time, I got, I got introduced to BDSM in high school and, and then I 
I joined the community. There's BDSM communities, there's FetLife, there's fetish communities and all of those things. And so I went to the conferences, I went to the workshops. I got to a point where I was teaching workshops mm. on consent and on aftercare and wow. Uh, yeah. And um, it was really the this belief that if I could be the puppeteer of recreating the abuse that I suffered, that that would heal me. Right. If I could be in control of the situation and still get abused, that that then would heal the abuse that I wasn't in control of. Mm. When the truth is, is that abuse is abuse is abuse is abuse is abuse is abuse. You know, like if, if it's abuse, then it's abuse. Um, there's no such thing as consensual abuse. There's no such thing as consensual rape. You know, the body keeps score. The body doesn't like if you're doing drowning play, your, your lungs, the inside of your body has no idea that you're playing pretend and that you can tap out at any moment. Mm -hmm. And then who, who are these men that are like literally getting off on this? Like, who are we allowing into our sacred, like, holy center of our, of our being that are wanting to drown us, that are wanting to rape us? Oh, it's okay because she said it was okay. Um, the, the amount of deaths by strangulation have increased in the last 10 years exponentially. And they're not recorded as domestic violence Be it's recorded as sex play gone wrong and the dude gets off scot-free i've heard stories of like a, a serial killer in new york who had repeatedly killed his girlfriends by strangulation and he's still just walking out free because it's sex play gone wrong it's like yeah the the, the thing that always struck me about bdsm is like you're basically saying that violence is okay just in the bedroom under this, these guidelines, this context. So, so strangling your wife in the kitchen while she's making dinner, not okay. Strangling her in the bedroom when she says, strangle me, that's okay. So I think like the, the thing that, that comes up around this is like, okay, well, what about like personal choice and like privacy. And I think a good argument to like bring up or a kind of counterpoint to that would be that in, in a male, female violent sexual experience, like the playing field is never even like there is always a dominance of the male body over the female body because of what the male body can do that the female body cannot like grip strength, you know, like that you use example earlier, like opening up a pickle jar. Like there's a reason why men can do that more easily than women. That's because they have a firmer grip strength. Like that's why women ask men to do that kind of thing. That doesn't mean women can't do it at all, but you know, that it's not an even playing field when we're talking about um, someone who's inherently physically stronger mm -hmm. and faster. Yeah. I, I was pro BDSM because it's defying sexual boundaries. 
right? Um, and it goes back to like this like core belief that the the sexual boundaries that were violated in my body, if I could figure out how to violate my own sexual boundaries, mm. then that would make the other violation okay. And I know that this isn't necessarily the thought process for every single participant in the BDSM community, but it's very, it's a very, very strong narrative. Mm. Um, So yeah, it was, it's about power and control. Like a lot of things are, (laughs) you know, Um, right now I um, am helping a friend leave a domestic violence situation and our mantra is, what is it about? Like when he's acting like that, what is it about? Because it's not the thing that he says it's, it is. It's about power and control. And so it's just like a little mantra that we have in is, what is it about? What, what like he's talking to you about, you know, the cutting boards, or he's talking to you about like, you know, um, this or that, like, what is it actually about? It's about power and control. And the, I think that that is, what sexual abuse is about. It's about who has power and control over what. When women's bodies are socialized commodities, like in in divorce courts, in custody battles, women and children are divvied out like they're commodities and it doesn't happen in the same way to men. You know, it, it just, it doesn't happen in the same way. And so when it's so ingrained in our system that it happens in custody battles and in, you know, divorce, um, then if, then of course it's going to happen to little girls and their uncles and their fathers and the priests and the therapists. There was, did you know that there was a 50 year debate between therapists on whether or not it was ethical to sleep with their patients? Wow. Right. And so like we we are living in a culture where um, where women and girls and children are just like we are as much commodities in the eyes of men as we are in the law, as we are in the billboards. You know, it's it's just so there. And so sexual abuse is about power and control. It's about gaining and taking power and control. And women have the most power out of all creatures on the earth, we have the power to create bone and consciousness. We have the power to create life. And, and so I think like for, for years and years and years, I was told that the root of female oppression is men's uh, desire to create life or to have control over life or to have control over the creation of life. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. And so how do we how do we get into a, a, a culture where women are denying and demonizing our power? We take that control and power away from them through sexual assault. Right. And then we have all these like lame attempts to, quote, reclaim our power. Mm-hmm. like BDSM, like surgical birth, like 
surrogacy, like, what am I missing? You know, the things like cutting our breasts off and calling ourselves men. Getting hysterectomies so we don't have to deal with our womanly bodies. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Oh gosh. And the in the seventies and eighties said that if we don't stop this now, women will want it, right? It, women will want to have it, and they will think of this work as empowering. And she was talking about pornography and like the and how pornography was getting more and more violent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is a common understanding that when one chooses to use pornography so watch it and ejaculate to it right like use it all the way through um you can't just get off to the same things over and over again it has to become more and more extreme and this is like just common understanding and they there was a point in like a 30 year period where we as a culture, we're not doing any studies on pornography because it was considered unethical for the viewer because it would, um, because we can't do studies that have long-term bad effects on the people that are, you know, participating in the study. And it was having such uh, strong effects that they're like, oh, we can't study the effects that porn has because it only has negative effects on the viewer. And so we had 30 years 20, 30 years where we weren't studying effects of pornography at all. That's crazy. And porn is protected under free speech, right? Mm -hmm. do, yeah. do, can you, can you get, you mentioned that at tea time, I think. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? There's a documentary about it. That's like a pro porn documentary. And I remember watching it at one of the BDSM conferences and it's about Hugh Hefner and he's the one that like brought this to court. And I don't remember what year decade it was. I think it was in the seventies. I don't know. And I remember watching it and being like, this is horrible. <laughs> this is terrifying. I have a really like, I don't think I finished the documentary. I'm not the best person to talk about the legalities of everything, but from my understanding, is that because it is filmed, then uh, it is considered art and art is speech. Mm, I see. Yeah. I see. That's wild. And so one of the questions that I get often is like, oh, well, what's the difference between art and porn? Right. And so I define porn through the male perspective, not through the female perspective, right? So porn is um, any literature, video, photography, anything that a man is going to seek out sexual gratification for. And that can be photos of your kids, that can be stock photos and picture frames that you see at the grocery store, that can be, uh, you know, um, Instagram, YouTube, it, it, the, the content itself is irrelevant. Um, it's just like things that men use for sexual gratification. Mm, mm. And I think that the, 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 the word use is very significant, right? It's not things that they look at. It's not things that they think about. Um, it is, it is a use. It is a mm. do. It is a function. Mm. 
Yeah, that's clarifying. Because as we know, with like autogynephilia, like that is a fetish. Like there is a mastur- masturbatory element that is at the focal point, at the center of the fetish. And the fetish is female biology. It's the wearing stereotypically female clothes, molding yourself, modeling yourself to emulate a more like female-esque physique. Mm-hmm. And in that case, there aren't women involved, but it is a fetish. It is a masturbatory fetish. So I guess, yeah, a, a distinction with, with pornographic materials, like they become the man in his dress becomes the masturbatory material. It's the auto, the self masturbatory um, it's the mirror that he's looking at. It's the yeah. camcorder that he has set up to film himself and get off to later. Yep. Yeah. And not to say that women don't use porn either. Mm-hmm. I used a bunch of porn and when mm-hmm. I was in the scene, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things I say about orgasms that we reach while watching porn is that they're like a chew orgasms. They're really, really short and intense, like, and then it's gone. <laughs> it's so good. I love that. <laughs> And when we have these short, intense orgasms, it it changes the way we experience pleasure in our brain Mm -hmm. and it rewires our pleasure responses and it rewires the way that, that we relate to the world. And when I stopped watching porn and got into a committed monogamous relationship, I started having the best orgasms of my life like that, that were long, like long ass orgasms. (laughs) And, um, and it blew my mind, you know, that I could achieve this without toys, without vibrators, without, you know, like other stimulus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That whole process is just robbed of you Mm -hmm. with porn and with, yeah, like automatic, like with battery operated toys for sure usb chargeable whatever i got my first sex toy when i was in high school and i stole it from the sex shop and i thought i was so cool you know and like it was it was completely robbed of me of what getting to know my body on my own Mm -hmm. like one of the questions I get asked about pornography is like, oh, how will my children learn what sex is without pornography? What? Oh, no. That's such a pathetic question. Oh, no. I get asked that like from women that we know, like it's, it's, it's so ingrained in us of that, like, you know, like pornography is helpful and empowering and you know, like I'm sure that you and your listeners have heard about that one book that's in school that has a picture. It's a cartoon drawing, but it has a picture of um, a man on top of a woman and their legs are together, you know, like it's wait, just like, no, wait, what book? Oh, gosh, I'm going to have to look it up. <sighs> it's one of the gender books of like teaching kids about sexuality oh okay 
Yeah. Okay. You were saying like oh, women right. ask you, how will the kids learn about kids learn to learn about sex if we don't show them porn? And I'm like, and so like one of my first things is, well, do you think like what do you think about porn is real? Like, what is it about porn that's mm. real? What is it about porn that your children need to know? You know, and like just posing that, like just giving it back to them, like opens up like because you know, then they're like, Oh, well, I don't like I know it's fake orgasms. I know that, you know, she's not really enjoying herself, or I know this, I know that. Um, and so like, yeah, that's that's how I answer that one. It's just like, what exactly do you want your kids to know about this film? So nuts. You you were the one who told me about just gave me insight into the reality of these women's lives who are in the porn industry, who are in the sex industry, like that most of them are survivors of rape. And then like even, and then of that, of incest. Mm -hmm. And then from that, like when we're watching porn, like we have no idea her actual age. We can assume she's like medicated on some kind of drug or sedated somewhat and like that just changes the whole thing for me like rather than like you know focusing on the rights and the legality of is it art is it not you know just like getting a better insight of like who you're actually watching which is that you have no idea and so it's all just projection and fantasy. But when you start to learn about the statistics and like the reality of these women's lives, I think it's like, I don't know. I mean, obviously most men don't know this, but a lot of women don't know this. I didn't know this. Like I had never considered these facets of like ethics uh, around this issue before. It was just so foreign to me. I mean, they truly were just uh, objects in my mind, like it's so fucked up, but that that's, you know, I saw them as just like a picture on the screen rather than a, a woman with a body and a mind and a consciousness and a childhood and a history. And, you know, I really appreciate that perspective. And I think just that tidbit about the reality of, of the kind of drugs mm -hmm. that one would need to be on to sustain this lifestyle, to survive this abuse is wild and, and revealing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that the average woman has, um, three months that she spends in porn. Um, when it's like, and, and this is just in North America and, uh, women who are, are these numbers are not women who are being trafficked and filmed. Hmm. So these numbers are women who are like, oh, I'm going to try out some porn. Let me pay my college tuition, you know, last about three months. And they exit for two, three reasons. For medical issues, because they've prolapsed. For rehabilitation issues, because they're addicted to drugs. Or to prison, because they've com committed some crime that is affecting them, but not their pimp or not the other producers or the male porn star. Mm. I was volunteering for a place in uh, the Midwest for two years for helping women exit prostitution. And now it's ran by a man dressing up as a woman. So I'm not welcome there anymore, which is heartbreaking, right? Like, gosh. And I, I really just, 
like the way that I've, I can see it and grasp it in my mind is that domestic violence is an addiction. It's mm -hmm. like a drug. And, you know, like, it's like a drug where the first time it happens, it's like the first time you try it, it's bad, but like, it's a year, it's still an addiction. It's still something that like, we, we go back to time and time again. And I would imagine that, you know, BDSM and foreign are probably similar to that. It, it's, you know, it's about control and power. It's about, you know, um, everything that drug addiction is about mm. as well. Right. Mm. Well, we also got into, um, talked about marriage at Rad Prem Tea Time too. You shared a lot about um, like what a woman gives up when she gets legally married and, and that varies state by state. Mm -hmm. But would you mind saying more on? Yeah. So I, I don't remember where I heard it from first, but I heard these words. And this woman said, when a woman signs a marriage certificate, she's signing away all of her human rights. And it does vary state by state and even county by county in some places. Um, but it's because in divorce court and in the court, women are treated as commodity. And so, you know, I, I think that there's a billion and 10 reasons on why a woman would choose to get married, right? Um, tax purposes being a huge one. We are, we are rewarded um, with paying taxes and, or like paying less taxes when we are married. But, you know, it, it comes at such a cost when like in divorce and in custody hearings, we see right away how much power men have over women in the court system. Um, when you look up divorce attorneys, like if you just go on your phone right now and look up divorce attorneys, you know, depending on like your, your Google filters or whatever, all of the ads that will come up are for men attorneys that only work with fathers and only work with men. And there are more divorce attorneys out there that only work with men that do not work with women whatsoever. Then, you know, like that's what the majority, the bulk of them are. And it's because we all know, like all of the attorneys know whose favor is more, you know, like who counts as more of a person and who counts as more of a commodity, who's seen as, um, as a second class citizen and who has actual rights. And I've seen this in court cases involving, you know, medical procedures, like in some states, women can't have a hysterectomy without their husband signing. Some women in some states, I think that this is in, oh gosh, I don't want to say in any state, but I know that in one state in the South, um, a woman can't have a single, a married woman cannot have a single medical procedure done without her husband knowing about it. So this is like a colonoscopy. This is an eye exam, anything. Wow. Right. And so when getting married, look up, you know, like, and, and you can't Google this information. You can't be like, what rights am I going to lose when I sign a marriage certificate? But you can look, you know, and like, look at your friends who have gotten divorced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Every single woman I know, every single woman I know has been financially screwed over in her divorce. And it's so revealing because we're told it's the opposite. We're told that the woman always comes out with more money and that, you know, the woman's a gold digger, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. But 
every single woman I know has had to pay a man to leave her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like racking. I'm like trying to sift through the examples I have. Yeah. Yeah. Or like he keeps the house mm-hmm. and she has to move out. Yeah. So like in domestic violence, right? That's the thing that I, I am on about is that in the majority of states, if a woman is going to flee domestic violence, she has to leave her job to do it. She has to, you know, or like miss work, probably she has to leave her house with all of her things in it. And if she's taking her children with you, her, that means that her children have to leave the house where they have, you know, established day-to-day routines, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It, 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 the status quo is to disrupt the woman's life. Well, the man, the abuser gets to keep on doing what he, you know, he doesn't get, have to miss work. He can still come home, you know, and drink a beer every night. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, it goes back to power and control. What power and control do those two situations have differently? You know, who has the power and who has the control? Because even if the woman does have money, she's looking at paying alimony to the guy. So in some cases, he'll continue like it's in his best interest to not work. Mm hmm to keep not working so that he can collect alimony to keep his income low. Oh gosh. You know, in all of Hollywood and all of the music that we listen to, it's, it's, it's like the reverse, you know, one of the things, um, one of my teachers, Ava Parks, she runs the museum of women in orange County, California. And she says, patriarchy is the opposite of the truth. Right. Like Coke, the real thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And and this is one of those is like, oh, look, women are gold diggers and they're just after men's money when literally every like, you know, I don't know a single woman that hasn't paid her man to leave. Mm -hmm. I don't know a single woman who hasn't gotten financially screwed over in her divorce or Mm unenmeshed. Yeah, I wonder how it felt for the women who were at tea time who were already married. Like, I wonder what that was like, because I mean, Amy is married. Amy Robertson Griffin, who we who we kind of co-hosted with, is married. I really liked her um, reflections and shares. I should I need to interview her. She needs to do an episode. But yeah, she 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 added the three of us is married, legally married, and she had a lot to say on marriage and relationships with um heterosexual like being in a heterosexual relationship as a radical feminist and yeah I wondered how it felt for women hearing some of this information because like one of the beautiful things I think about our journeys is that like we've been able to serve a lot of women support a lot of women, like listen, evolve all the things before being married and before having children. I think it's a unique position to to be in. Not that it necessarily means we won't make any mistakes, <laughs> but, you know, to have this information prior to making the decision, uh, perhaps to, to be legally married. Would you ever get legally married? 
So I was super against legally marrying anyone for the longest time. And I broke up with my partner of seven years, October or something. And I am going into this place where I'm like, I am interested in possibly getting legally married. And for tax tax reasons and for travel reasons. I know that it's easier to travel um, all around the world when you're legally married. Wait, really? So like in um, Abu Dhabi, super fun place to go, right? You (laughs) You can't get a hotel room with somebody from the opposite sex unless you're legally married, unless you have a marriage certificate. So you couldn't go to Abu Dhabi with your boyfriend or fiance? I mean, you'd have to stay in two separate rooms. You'd have to stay in two separate rooms. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I guess I've never tried to enter a country where that would be the issue. So I never encountered that myself, but that that makes sense. That makes I mean, sense. And, and I've seen like crossing borders as families mm. happen really mm-hmm. not smoothly when the, the, the parents are not married. Mm. Yeah. Or like women having different last names Hmm. from their children can be tricky. Yeah. I, the majority of friends that I have decided to name their, or give their children unique last names. So they keep their name. The man doesn't give his name and they like choose a new name for a Latin Mm -hmm. surname for their children. They didn't get the COVID checks for their children because they had different last names. Yeah, they, wow. they, they didn't qualify. Their children didn't qualify. I know women, uh, same group of mothers where they're, they qualify for less WIC benefits because their children don't have their same last name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So name politics is certainly not like, you know, it centers men. Yeah. Yeah. And even if women keep their maiden names, those are still the names of their paternal lines. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, that dawned on me recently. I'm like, why am I? I mean, like, am I that attached to my last name? Like, it's like, what is it? Like, it's it's a history there. I definitely don't want to throw it away should I get married. Mm -hmm. But it's my father's 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 name. You know, like I even if I tried, I would, I, I mean, I've tried to, I know the first names of my maternal line only about three generations back, maybe four, but those are just first names. Like I don't, I don't even have last names and those last names are from their fathers. So where, where is the, yeah. where is the so last name? when I name the women in my lineage, I, I really don't put too much emphasis in, on learning their last names because mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, because it's, it's, so it's futile. I do want to say one more thing about me and marriage, though. Like, mm-hmm. I view marriage in two separate, like, there are two separate compartments in my mind. It's a ceremony and the legal right? I really, really encourage people to do those two things separately in separate points in time. So get the ceremony, do that, and then wait a year or two and then do the legal or wait until you have kids to do the legal. 
And when you enter into that legal agreement, know that you are entering into a contracted agreement with an institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and go in with that mentality, not with the, not with the ceremony mentality, right? Like right. that's, that's separate. I absolutely plan to have a prenup. Mm-hmm. Um, a prenup from my understanding is what's going to happen when we get divorced. Right. I think that a lot of times when women think about prenups, it's like, oh, that it, it, it's going to be like, it's like having less control somehow, or like it, it means a certain thing, but you get a lawyer that is not con- like, not that doesn't know your husband. Right. Mm-hmm. And you have your lawyer look over that prenup and add in anything that you want to do. Right. This is like an equal agreement. Like, what are we going to do in case we break up? What is going to happen to the children? You can have different clauses in it. You can have a vaccination clause. Mm-hmm. Like you can have, um, you know, especially with this trans stuff going on, you can have like absolutely no medical transition, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely. And I think that, you know, these things like, I've only been in one long-term relationship and every time we made a major life decision, we would talk about what would happen if we were to break up. So when we bought a bus, we bought a, like this amazing bus, we were traveling around the country and, and it, we had, before we bought, paid the money, it was like, okay, so this, this is more like someone's money than the other person's money. And when we, like, if we were to break up, we're going to sell it and divvy it out evenly mm. and go back. And so we had that, you know, we talked about it before we bought it mm-hmm. and, you know, I bought a house we didn't buy a house together. It was my credit (laughs) and it was my money. And, you know, he put in a little bit, you know, of money to it, but like nothing comparable. And so we talked about it. We're like, if we, if, or like, you know, if we break up, like you get nothing, like this is just a donation that you're giving to the house and I'm not giving you anything back of it, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's, that's what I view a prenup is, is just like talking about your assets in a way that is healthy for your relationship. Because a lot of times things are going to come up that are places of conflict. Yeah. And if places of conflict before going in, they're absolutely going to go be places of conflict as you're coming out of it. Right. Right. And like most relationships do dissolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and so it's like icky to think about you know, with all this, like a, with all the like Roe versus Wade draft being leaked and then overturned and just the way that we're being asked to like organize and strategize. And it just has had me thinking about like the amount that I have shared with men that mm-hmm. I've been with and how I, I guess have some regret with the, the amount that I've shared and revealed because of inevitability of yeah most relationships just relationships dissolving and so how much are you like revealing about your like sister network you know it's yeah and that that might sound like kind of like doom and gloom but i i I think there's like a just a realism to protecting not only our ourselves and our assets but like our our systems and our networks in place to like being uh, mindful of that 
And like what we experienced with the festival is like, what is it like when men can support and show up and be in service to and build and, and do all the things like you mentioned of our, our friends, husbands, like showing up in, in that way. But, and, and it's such a good filter for me to have, like, honestly, honestly, it is because I'm like now when I'm looking for a potential par- partner, a potential father to my children, I'm like, okay, is he going to be able to show up? Is yeah. he going to be able to come out to North Carolina with me totally with these men, you know, and like not make it about himself and not be disoriented because it's not centering men and not be, you know, like in drama about it. Like we saw with some of the men last year. Yeah, totally. Totally. Oh, it's such a good barometer like test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, I remember the question I wanted to ask you about BDSM. Like, what do you say, like going back to that, back to control and power, the other iteration of control and power we were talking about, how do you respond when people say, oh, but, you know, there's a fine line between pleasure and pain. And so pain is like actually a really normal part and healthy part of of sex. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that reminds me of how, when I was giving workshops in the BDSM community, one of the intros <laughs> that I would have is emotional healing doesn't always feel good, right? Like when we are feeling our feelings to completion and we come across like sadness or depression, like it doesn't feel good to be in those, but it feels good to have cried it out after we cry. You know, it feels good, like the after part of what we cry. And so I would say that the same is true for pain and pleasure in a sexual capacity is that it hurts in the moment. But what we the, the gratification that we find afterwards is where the healing is. That's what you would say in defense of BDSM. Yeah, at that yeah point. that's what I would say in defense of BDSM. And I've heard this so often. I like, I hear it on TikTok of like, oh, shadow, let's do some shadow work. And BDSM is like shadow work, you know? Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And so my response to that is that I, so like my body, I trained myself to be numb right? From a very young age, experiencing abuse, I, I trained myself to not feel pain. And I have a much higher pain tolerance than most anyone I know. And I have a numbness that's like underneath that. Um, and so like I have, okay, so I'm going to give you two really just examples and hope that there's a woman out there that's like, yes, exactly. So I, um, I traveled out of a backpack for 10 years and like hitchhiking all around the world. And my backpack stayed around 50 to 70 pounds. And after 10 years of doing this, it gave me a slight scoliosis in my spine Mm. and I have no pain around it. I've gone to, I, like a few years ago, I, I really, like, I found out about it and I was like, oh, what? And then my, the chiropractor that was doing the x-rays, she was like, yeah, do you have any, you must have a lot of psoas pain, or you must have a lot of pain on your, like in your butt. And I'm like, actually that part of my body is completely numb. Mm -hmm. And she goes, this is what she says. She goes, oh, lucky for you. 
right? Like, oh, you're, you're so lucky that you've numbed yourself out that you don't feel pain. Wow. Um, and so, and then I want to also go back into like, like how porn rewires your brain, right? Like the way that we experience pleasure is hardwired in us. And like, we can change that and rewire it. I know that we can achieve orgasm in less than ideal circumstances. Mm -hmm. Women have orgasms while being raped. Women have Mm -hmm. orgasms, um, you know, like they wake up being raped and orgasming. Like it's, it's a common occurrence that happens. And so when we act out, rape and when we act out pain and achieve orgasm it rewires our brain and it's easy to do as humans all of our nerve receptacle right like all of the the way that we feel is designed to be playful and to give us pleasure like evolutionary speaking like all of our nerve endings are designed to give us pleasure and so our our brains are really really good allowing that to happen of allowing us to be like, Oh, okay. I'll just experience this as pleasure. And for me in my personal journey of coming back, it's like that, the, a two orgasm. Mm -hmm. It's like when, when pain is pleasure, it's like, it's just like this, it's like an, a two. And, and then when you start stepping away from pain Mm -hmm. and start feeling into the numbness, Mm. and start feeling your emotions and start feeling, you know, like pleasure without pain, then, then you just get to these higher um, places of pleasure. And so I think that this idea of pain is pleasure is an upper limit to actually experiencing the full range of pleasure Mm. that we have access to. Mm. That make that totally makes sense. And like the how how sponge like we are in our like pathways and that all it takes is repetition mm-hmm. to anchor you know pain to orgasm or even like the flickering of a light to orgasm like you could literally anchor anything to an yeah. orgasm and just because you can doesn't mean that it's good good for you like you said yeah thank you for answering that that's that's a great um that's a great answer is there any context that where you think pain and sex is permissible or like good? In my own healing, like I haven't given birth. I'm, I'm, you know, a maiden, but I've, I've, I kind of have tried to see it as like, as, as a birth, right? Like in birth, when a woman does a bunch of work, you know, leading up to her birth, she describes her birth as intense and not painful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that there are moments in our intimacy that can be intense in my own healing journey. One of the biggest things that I did is I, I would say like I stopped and I would just start stopping in the middle of intimacy. And this could be foreplay. This could be sex or this could be like, you know, right before climax. And anytime I didn't feel a hundred percent in my body and a hundred percent present, I would say stop and we would stop. And then we would either talk about it or take a break. Cause sometimes I just mm-hmm. need to take a break. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't 
have a complete intimate relation for over a year, I would say. Um, but it was really, really important to me. And what was happening to me is that I kept on having flashbacks that would come into my head during intimacy. And, and so I was like, how do I make these flashbacks stop? And mm. so the answer was I just stop doing intimacy mm. once the flashbacks appear. I had trained my brain to get off on rape because I was trying to recreate rape in my BDSM practice. And so then once I had a partner that didn't want to rape me, I would get flashbacks of being raped. I wouldn't get mm. flashbacks of being raped when I had a partner that was getting off on, on raping me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it, it's a mind trip. And I hear this all the time from women of like, I like, how do I stop these flashbacks? I, I have, um, I know women that have told me that uh, they've never experienced sexual abuse outside of their hospital birth. And now every time they are intimate with their husband after their birth, they flash back to the hospital, you know? Yeah. 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 And yeah. So like the way that I deal with that is I just stop what, what it is. And I either take some time to myself or we talk about it. Mm -hmm. And if we were going to do it, then we have time to talk about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes we just have to keep on talking about it and keep on talking about it and keep on talking about it. And sometimes that doesn't work and we need to draw about it or paint about it or create something else about it. When, when we get in touch with our sexual spaces, that, that like our womb is the womb of creation. And the portal to the womb of creation is the vagina. And so to heal from assault of the vagina requires creation. It requires that we create something from this, the sacred holy place that we are. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of times talking it out isn't going to get you anywhere because mm-hmm. you need that extra step. It's crazy to think about someone who's still so entrenched in like BDSM and has that really strong anchor to pain, mm-hmm. uh, like pain and orgasm. Yeah, I was definitely there. And one of the things that I, the first thing that was ever said to me against BDSM cracked me open. And it was, what if love looked less like violence? Hmm. And that's it. Like, what if, just what if love looked less like violence? I mean, you could apply that to fucking the the medicalization of kids and young girl. I mean, you could, you could take that in the, in like the trans context too. Like, wow. Yeah. What would love look like without violence? I love that, that question. That's really powerful. I was thinking, yeah, as you were sharing about like the pain orgasm anchor um, or the pain and sex anchor, like someone who's so numbed out or conditioned to 
experience violence and sex, like how is that person like that poor cervix was my first thought, like, mm-hmm. you know, like in the conversations amongst our friends, it's like pelvic health and postpartum healing and strengthening the pelvic floor to, you know, have a smooth, you know, pregnancy and birth and postpartum healing and all the kind of the subtleties and the nuance of caring for our reproductive systems and organs, muscles. And so that is like, feels so advanced (laughs) when you're, when you're talking about, you know, someone who just might always bleed after sex, like that's wild. Like the blood, is that from abrasion? Is that from a cyst? Is that from, you know, just the friction of the, the rape? But like what, you know, just it being so the health consequences, let alone like the actual repercussions on the body versus, you know, or in addition to the, all the mind stuff, which is all about, do I like this? Is this for me? Is this empowering? Like all the postmodern, like, like contemplation fantasy of, um, what does it mean? What, what, what is even sex or what does it mean? What does pleasure even mean in 2022 for a feminist or, you know, it's like all of the mind shit, but then coming back to the material. That's a pink news headline right now. What does pleasure mean in a feminist 2022 era? Totally. Totally. Oh my gosh. And, And that's really how I see a radical feminist analysis that's always coming back to the the stuff the things the ground the material the earth the roots like you know where and i and when i think of like leftist feminist or liberal feminism whatever we want to call it i think of the the flighting like the up here the just in the mind everything's concentrated to the mind and the imagination and this like non-human mm-hmm. you know world and paradigm um disconnect the disconnect the dissociation yeah yeah the isolation the individualism for sure for sure yeah i think i don't um it was i it was like in marxist communism where i first heard this but um the first regime to ever say society is made up of individuals was a fascist regime Mm. and then we just like took it and ran and now it's just like democracy is that like oh it's individual choice Hmm. the elimination of seeing each other as part of a class system so in our case the female sex class yeah, because, you know, like if anyone can be a woman and it doesn't matter, you know, how you came out of the whatever you came out of, because you definitely didn't come out of a woman, you know, <laughs> like, and there's there's no biological markers. There's no um, ideological markers there. There's there's no definition besides a circular one of what womanhood is then it's like no yeah like i love mary lou singleton she said 
um, she's the first one that told me, and I know I, we've put it up on signs now, but you know, she's the first one that told me that if we can't define women, then we can't defend women's rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know that you were running, you had been running group coaching program for women who were healing are healing from sexual assault. And that program is on pause right now, but you have a wait list. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you maybe would you like to say more about that? Yeah. So I do, I coach women uh, healing from sexual assault and sexual abuse. I do one-on-one coaching and group coaching. I've done, I ran a program called Arms of Goddess. It was a six-week program and I ran it for a year last year and um, 24 women came through. And so I had like small groups uh, throughout the year and it has, it was so amazing. It was so transformative and uh, women have described it as a foundation, Mm. right? Like it's a, it's foundation work. Mm. Um, And so I'm looking to open that up to be outside. So instead of having a six week program, um, to develop it into something else. And what that is, is going to be launched in the fall. And I have a waiting list. Um, so you can head on over to my Instagram or TikTok, Astarte Rose in confidence and sign up for my waiting list for group coaching from healing from sexual assault. And then that'll get you onto an email. Um, and once I have more information, you'll get all of all of the information as it comes. Amazing. So great. Oh, well, I really enjoyed rehashing some of our more controversial uh, <laughs> viewpoints of the festival of Rad Femme Tea Time and, and really talking about, yeah, like how also just like how much fun we had at the festival and how much joy we experienced and like allow allowed ourselves to experience, I think is a huge, um, tell me me what was your favorite part of the festival? Rad Femme Tea Time, a hundred percent, obviously. I mean, it was, I think a woman came up to me after, so we did it two days. It was about two hours each time. Well, actually it was, we, we stayed kind of on time. The first, it was like an hour ish the first day. And then over, I think it was two hours the second day. Um, And a woman came up to me after and said, did you know that like there were over like a hundred women at your tea time today? And this is only a 200 woman festival. So it was such an intimate, it felt like we were talking to like 30 women. And so when she said the number of women who were there, it just like, it felt that much more, um, just awesome that like women were coming because they wanted to hear about this. They wanted clarity. They wanted to hear us articulate like a shared concern. They wanted to feel validated. They wanted to get facts. They wanted to get statistics. They wanted to know action steps. Um, I just really felt how captivated each woman who who came like was by what the three of us shared. Um in the authority that we shared it, you know, like coming to our events or talks, like is not a, your truth, my truth kind of scenario. Like we are speaking with authority because 
we believe in our mission. We believe in our analysis. We believe that, that this is like, what is like, we know the things and say the things that we believe are, are wrong. Um, when it comes to women's liberation. Yeah. So yeah, hundred so, percent. That was my favorite. Yeah. The, in the email of the one woman that left, she was like, and they just talked like it was fact. Yeah. 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 It's like, hell yeah, yeah we did. And like one, one of the things that has really shifted my consciousness is reading Andrea Dworkin. And I think it's like the writing style of the seventies more so, but if you read anything from the seventies, like, or any nonfiction at all, they're not writing in a way that's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, well, it's my opinion. Or like, you know, this is, this is the, uh, you know, like, it's like, no, this is the evidence I've gathered. This is how, you know, the world is. And I, and, and what I think is, is that men are allowed to be philosophers Mm. and women aren't Mm -hmm. So radical feminism. The way that I define it is it's, it's a political philosophy and philosophy is the stories that we create about our lived experiences. And I know that lived experiences is like a Mm. super hot word right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that it is in the definition of philosophy, right? It's like the stories that we create around our lived experiences. Mm. And so having a radical feminist philosophy is, you know, like that's, that's what we do. We were philosophers. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh God. If I have to hear one more man, tell me that women are not reasonable and that we operate from our emotions. I think I'm going to do something not so good. <laughs> like, I think I'm going to uh, record him next time he's all up in his emotions. <gasps> oh, God. Oh, I love that. That's such a good note to end on. Well, can I can I end or on not? The- oh, yeah. We're going to end with okay. your bleeding rag. My bloody rag. OK, so I. Um, I want to say I had growing up, I had the worst periods ever. I would have seven to 10 day periods with four days of heavy bleeding. I would miss school, even in like boarding schools that I went to, I would have to miss school. I would miss work. It, it like, it was some serious, painful periods. And when I was like 25, I got off of the like of pharmaceutical meds and it helped. It helped a lot. Right. And then I got an IUD, a copper one. And so that, you know, it went back into having painful, heavy periods again. And in the last three years, I have stripped like I heard that there was a such thing as the perfect period by steamy chick. And I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And three years later, I had the perfect period at Matriarch Rising. Oh my gosh. The perfect period. So um, some things to do that I, that got me here is that I identified a uterine tilt and I fixed it through posture and a like womanly posture work. Mm-hmm. And um, I identified some hormonal imbalances. And so I uh, changed my diet to help me with those. And so... About two, two and a half months before the festival, 
I woke up from a dream and I had this vision. So it wasn't like, I wasn't like asleep. I was like in waking world, but like, I haven't woke, like opened my eyes yet. And I had this vision of me squatting and passing a blood clot on Emily's land at Matriarch Rising Festival. And I was like, oh, that's a beautiful vision. Like, oh, how great. And then I kind of like look at like, you know, the moon cycles and like, all right, it's not going to happen this year because I'm going to be ovulating. I'm not going to be bleeding. My period came 12 days late. And it came on Sunday night when all of the women were there. And I uh, like it told like I knew I knew I knew it was going to come. And so Sunday, all of the women are coming in and I'm like, I'm going to start bleeding tonight. And so I was borrowing bedding from Emily. So I didn't have to like drive all like extra stuff in my car. And I have, um, I had a bleeding towel and I like put down the bleeding towel. And then I had another one that I put up in between my legs. And I like, I'm like, I'm not going to worry that I'm going to bleed on her things. Like, I know I'm not. And I woke up the next morning and there was a little bit of blood. Um, and I was like, it's here, you know, and I had like this excitement feeling. And so I had a four day period starting on Monday and ending on Thursday. And my first day was my heaviest bleed bleeding day, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it was my heaviest bleeding day. And this is my cloth from the first day. This is all of the blood that I caught on my first day, my heaviest day of bleeding. And it's because I was so present in my body and I was so present at the festival that I would have a sensation and like just know that it was time to squat down mm -hmm. and I'd like look to the tree line and you know like a, a plant or something would kind of like say hi to me and breeze in the wind and I'd walk over there and I'd squat down and I'd pass a clot and, and then I'd like stand up and wipe myself off a little bit. There was not a single moment where I had blood running down my legs. It's amazing. I like, if it didn't happen to me, I would not have thought it was possible. Like the bloodiest day. This is the blood that I collected. It's on my, I like, I'm going to frame it and put it on my wall. I'm like so proud of it. Yes. It is. I mean, it's a huge feat. I mean, it totally is. I have to say, I also had an incredible period at the festival. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't know if it was perfect, but it was like, it was great. So I, yeah, I, I feel you on there being something really special about bleeding with all those women. Yeah. And it felt like such a reciprocity to the land. It felt like I was giving like, and not like all of the women that were bleeding, we were giving our nutrients. We were feeding the land as much as it was feeding us, mm. you know, mm -hmm. and it felt like this equal exchange mm -hmm. uh, between the land and the women. Totally. And I, and I had this moment after I came home of like, this is how it used to be. Like, this is how women used to <laughs> Yeah with the earth, you know? Oh my gosh. Like, it's so sad. It yeah. it, you know, it was never a big deal. 
we just knew when we had to pass a clot and we went out and bled mm-hmm. onto the, our gardens and then we ate that food and it nurtured us. And my, my spirituality is so tangible. Mm. It's so tangible, you know, like my blood going into the earth and then me eating the nutrients back, like that is tangible. Mm. I really wanted to share my blood rag. I'm so glad you did. That's a perfect way to end. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member who needs to hear this content. And if you do share it on social media, don't forget to follow and tag me at whose body is it. So until next time, 